Now let us turn in his word to hear from him to 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 of this chapter of 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Starting in verse 1. And now the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord, the covenant of the Lord, here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. The ark of the covenant is a fascinating object. The ornate box was called the Ark of the Covenant because it housed the Ten Commandments, which God gave Israel to be their God King and for Israel to be the covenant people, his kingdom people. Part of the mystique of the Ark of the Covenant is that we don't know where the Ark is. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant went after the Babylonian exile, causing much present-day dispensationalist angst. And yet, we've seen it in our own modern-day culture. When I was a boy, the Ark of the Covenant was that powerful thing which Indiana Jones used to melt the faces off of Nazis and make their heads explode. But, very important information here, if you closed your eyes, then you'd be okay. Even at that young age, I never really understood why judgment was abated by closing your eyes. Anyway... For the Nazis in this very fictional Indiana Jones movie, or for almost anyone in our modern day, the significance of the Ark of the Covenant was and is in its inherent, strange, and mystical power that people could potentially tap into and control. Just like in Indiana Jones, it is really that power which gives the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh real significance for most people because it might be controlled, it might be tapped into. That technological misunderstanding, that this power religion 
perhaps to our surprise, was not just the fictional Nazi misunderstanding of the Ark, but a sinful misunderstanding of even the real historical covenant people of Israel. And their high priests, even in 1 Samuel 4, with far greater costs than just melting a few dozen soldiers. Israel in our passage is a prime example of the religion of power, which is so popular in our culture today as well. Whatever the cost, whatever the strategy, power to control our lives for the sake of our own goals. The religion of power is alive in Christians as well as an attempt to use, manipulate, harness, or bait God into working for our purposes and our goals alone. And we see this in Israel as they tried to control and manipulate God for their own success, never considering God's laws, nor even asking God's thoughts in this matter. So, to get into our passage, we break from the hitherto microscopic focus in 1 Samuel upon Samuel and his family, and Eli and his family, and turn to the 10,000-foot look at the whole of Israel. Israel, the nation, has a problem on their hands here in our text. A powerful enemy has come to destroy them. The Philistines, a powerful people who had taken residence upon the coast of Israel, in verse 2, had drawn up in line against Israel. And Israel's response is initially encouraging. They brought up a battle line as well. But the biblical comment of this first battle is short and sad. Verse 2 when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men. 4,000 men is no small number, a significant loss for Israel, causing them to pause. Israel not only had a powerful enemy that was upon them, but they had been defeated. And a holy Israel ought to have asked why this defeat happened, which perhaps to our surprise, they actually did. In this text, in verse 3, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But the second half of verse 3 spells the downfall of Israel, because instead of asking God this question, why they were defeated, and therefore having a chance to repent and win in the next battle by his answer, the question they asked, they seemingly asked only to themselves. The elders take matters into their own hands, into their own power, and say, without asking God, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Israel's response to their defeat is an attempt to harness God's power for themselves so that he might be controlled for their purposes. Israel did not turn to God, so God will use this situation to ju show just how true Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 is, which says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, even if Israel is one of those adversaries. And not by might nor by power shall a man prevail, as we've heard before. And to apply the judgment against Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, as he promised in 1 Samuel 3. The central question of this passage is asked, in fact, by Israel in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today? So to find out why God has defeated them, let's briefly examine what the ark was and what Israel expected from it, and then we'll examine Israel's utter defeat and why it happened. So Israel 
had expectations of the Ark. But what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was a box, which signified God's presence. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant is not the Ark itself. The word Ark sounds cool because it's a Latin word or a high-sounding Latin cognate from arca, meaning chest or box. But in Hebrew, it's just a common word, which means chest or box as well. And it's even used in 2 Kings to describe a place where you store your money. It's just a chest to store precious things in. So that the significance of the ark wasn't itself necessarily, but what was contained in it and what it signified especially. Otherwise, it was just an ornate box. But what it held was precious. Most importantly, the two tablets of stone written by God's own hand, the Ten Commandments, and signifying God's presence. This covenant document, the Ten Commandments, where God promised his presence with his people. The ark was significant in another way. In the past, it was present at some of Israel's greatest victories, in fact. God commanded Joshua to use it in his first campaign against Jericho, where Israel walked into the wall, or rather around the walls, as God directed, until they fell down by God's power. And this is key for understanding what's going on in Israel, what they're expecting of the ark, and Joshua used it. What they expected from the ark was a God technology, which they could control for the sake of the power therein. They expected the box of the covenant to be so powerful that it guaranteed success in battle. We see this from Israel's reaction when the ark of God entered into the camp in verse 5. They were so jubilant that at their cry the earth shook for joy. So they think victory is close in their own minds. Looking to Joshua's victory, where the ark was present, Israel somehow attributes this victory to the ark and not to God, and Joshua working through the command of God, and Joshua's obedience, that is. See what Israel says in verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. That it may save us. The ark of God was merely a new tactic in battle to Israel. They were hoping to force God's hand in this tactic, much like the pagan nations sacrificed their gods, trying to manipulate them through food and drink, which they thought they needed to give them power. This time, it was thinking God had left some residual power in this magic box to be tapped into without God knowing or asking. Much like the Nazis in Indiana Jones, the arrogance is quite astounding. Israel was called to annihilate the pagan nations around them. So perhaps they expected they were doing God a favor by blaspheming him as a technology to be controlled for their own power for a shared end, perhaps. So to summarize, the ark was just a box which symbolized God's presence and his covenant with Israel. And although there had been great victories in the past where the ark was present, Israel had considered the ark a chess pawn or perhaps a chess queen in their game of war, merely a powerful object that guaranteed success, perhaps would ingratiate God to their service since they were defeating their pagan neighbors. Well, were these expectations met? No, their expectations are utterly wrong, as their second defeat shows. 
the results of, the, of power religion in general. The results of power religion. The first result of power religion in Israel is the annihilation of Israel's entire army in a second battle. Instead of Israel using the ark to empower themselves, it actually cursed them and strengthened their enemies. Power religion gives people false confidence, and they are defeated falsely thinking God is on their side. Power religion gives false confidence, as it was given to Israel here. We see this strengthening of their foes in verses 5 through 9, where the Philistines hear the presumptuous shouting of the Israelites when the ark came into the camp, and they say unto themselves in verse 8, Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become the slaves of the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Be men and fight. The Philistines were distressed by the ark because they feared the power of Yahweh. Ironically, they feared the power of Yahweh far more than Israel. And so the Philistines were not weakened by the ark, but fought harder because they knew it was there. But for Israel, we see them incurring the Lord's displeasure through the worship of power and control. They tried to force God's hand in this as if he were nothing more than a powerful box or a war horse to be led along by bit and bridle. And Israel had apparently not listened at all to Samuel at all. This is, as we see in verse 1, telling us that he stretched his word to all Israel. They had not listened because they had not even, they had not listened because they had not only brought the ark into the camp without asking God, but even brought the damned high priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the same sons of Eli, cursed to death by God himself in the chapter before. No one was listening to Samuel because no one was repenting. Hophni and Phinehas should be dead. They should be dead by now from Israel's elders actually listening to God. And yet here they are in the camp. And so the result of their presumptuously bringing the ark into the camp was this. They were utterly defeated, as verses 10 through 11 tell us. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. To put this in perspective, these two battles killed half as many people as the initial blast of the nuclear bomb over Nagasaki. It was an utterly devastating blow. And Israel, as a military nation, is now dead. They have no military. They have no high priests. And soon they will have no judge, the national leader. This is the closest Israel comes to utter annihilation in their history besides the exile. So that Israel utterly failed. But what seems to them the final nail in the coffin is not the death of their leaders and military, but God forsaking Israel. That is, and here's the second result of this power religion, the ark is taken. It was taken captive by the Philistines, and God's symbol of his presence had gone to a different people. Israel had not only been defeated by God, but God had forsaken They thought they were following God, but God showed Israel that they had been worshiping power instead. Power and control and their own goals this whole time so that God left his people to their own goals and went to the land of the Philistines. 
Why did this happen? Israel was not worshiping God. They were worshiping power, as we've seen. Israel thought they had manipulated God and led him, or rather, by leading him into their camp to victory. But he was not. Their sin was so great that they were worse than the pagan nations. They had to be punished by God because they are attempting to control him, attempting to manipulate God. And is, that is a cause for God's displeasure. And he will cause us defeat if we are trying to use him for mere power. He will show us true power and cause us to repent. So low had God made Israel that this battle was, that the only question left for Israel after this battle was not whether they would succeed in their goals, but whether they would survive at all. Power religion is still alive and well today. Many of us come from manipulative techniques as the altar call, psychological methods, underhanded dealings, social pressures to conform to the so-called spiritual giftings, instead of the hearing, telling, and living the pure biblical truth and trusting God in our lives. Success today is always said to be in your hands. There is no submission to God in this power religion, no repentance, only technique and method, technology, magic, and manipulations. To one who worships their own power, God, like everything else in power religion, is to be used for their own goals of success. In the end, power religion does not worship God at all. It worships self. How do you know that you are a worshiper of power and not of God? Well, whose goals fill your mind? Is it our goals, our things, our money, our life, our kids, our job, our success, our legacy, our, 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 mine, mine, mine? What technologies do we use to try and manipulate God and others into our service? Let God work in his own time, in his own way. Do you pray, as we see in our own text, This is a litmus test of power religion. How much do you pray? Because power, or rather, because prayer is a confession that God controls and has power. Just as we saw in our passage, Israel didn't ask God. It attempted to manipulate him. Do you think Israel cared about God besides what he brought them? God was a catalyst for their goals. If God was an idol that gave power, they would have been happier. If God was an M1 Abrams tank, Israel would have been happier. Do you tolerate God for your goals? Where is God in your religion? Is he your helper? Is he your servant? Is his word designed for your glory and goals? Why are you here to hear his word? The simple, ordinary means of grace are given to you here. What do you hope for in them? For Israel, he seemingly dashed all their hopes and plunges them into deep darkness as the lamp of God goes out for Israel, it seems, and enters into the powerful enemy's land, the Philistines. Israel is too weak to even attempt a rescue mission at this time, and God uses this opportunity for blessing amazingly. As the ark descends into captivity, where God proves he is powerful and he is in control. The army of Israel again is utterly shattered and their structure of command is dead. Phinehas and Hophni, the high priests of Israel, are dead and the leader of Israel, Eli, the judge, 
will also be dead very soon, as we see in the following section. Nothing in Israel lies between the Philistines overtaking Israel utterly. Yet God, for all the horrible things that Israel does, for all their idolatry, all their attempted manipulations of God, all their trust in self, and the use of God as a technology or technique for their success and power, for all this but God. But God goes into captivity. And he does the work of salvation himself. He does the work himself by his own power and judges the Philistines severely in their own land, defending Israel at the same time, breaking the Philistines' will to attack. The ark goes into captivity in the place of faithless Israel to attack their enemies. Although Israel is completely worthy to be destroyed in this text, we shall see that God has not forsaken his covenant. For the sake of his covenant people in Christ Jesus, he gives us a picture of the work of Christ in the symbol of God's presence going into exile alone. Jesus, who was no symbol of God's presence, but was God himself, came in the flesh, came to save us. He came and the rulers of Israel did not ask God about him. They simply tried to use him in this way and that for their own ends. They tried to control him. They tried to use his power. And they tried by any means necessary to silence him if he got out of control. And because of this desire for power, the high priests of that time condemned the Son of God to death. Peter describes it in this way to the Jews. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so in our story, the symbol of God's presence goes into the hands of lawless men, the Philistines. And yet God, even in what seems like his weakest, is strong. The ark descends into the land of the Philistines that he might break the back of the enemies of God and bring the true elect salvation, save his people through judgment. Christ died upon the cross at the hands of lawless men that he might break the back of death and Satan, the enemy of enemies, and save his people through judgment. God saved Israel without Israel's help. Jesus saved us without our help. Here's the point. Israel was a failure. Jesus saved us without an inch of our help, and you are a failure as well. Israel attempted to manipulate God and control him for their own ends, just like you and I, we humans, always have been, from the start of sin, manipulators. I am, you are, every human being is full of this pride, this stench of power religion, our desire to control and be God. Yet none of us have any power to save ourselves or to use God, try as we might, but God his great mercy saved us before we even asked, before we were ever worthy of this. Just like the ark, Christ was left for dead and indeed died, all for those who would never have loved him except for his work, which changes their heart in his death and resurrection. You and I have broken every commandment that is in the ark of the covenant. It's not about our power. It's not about our goals. It's about the power of God and his goals, which were far better than ours. 
eternal salvation, eternal bliss. For what is the gospel? Is it your power? No, says Paul in Romans, it is the power of God, the power of God for salvation. Our salvation is not a technique for control of God, to get what we want. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience, a giving from God of what we need and we should want. Our salvation is not a technology. It is Christ's righteousness uniting us to God in fellowship. Our salvation is not a thing, a box, a set of rules, a handshake, or ten commandments, ten rules for life. Our salvation is a man, Christ Jesus our Lord. Christianity is not a self-help religion, but faith in God's accomplished work in Christ. Let us not multiply crosses around our necks and on our walls for the sake of an investment power. We are askers, brothers and sisters, not manipulators. We are appliers. We are not demanders. In closing, brothers and sisters, we must repent of our using of God. Repent of our desire for control of God's power. Repent of our desire to control what God alone can control and have faith in Christ Jesus, God descending into the pit of the enemy for his wretched people made new. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Oh Lord, we love you, we thank you, but we love you and we thank you because you loved us first. Lord, we attempt and have attempted to manipulate you into our own goals each and every day. Lord, we are so much like Israel who presumes upon you, not repenting, not even listening to your word, not remembering your Ten Commandments, but we presume upon you. Lord, be merciful to us. Have, have grace upon us for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you might be glorified in your mercy and that as we go out because of your mercy, we might glorify you in doing these things. Lord, we have seen the judgment for those who attempt to use you Lord, we pray that instead of doing these things, that you would control us, that your word would control us, that we would be controlled by what is right. Lord, bring that day. We will see you as you are, and the, the presence of Christ will be enough for us. Lord, we love you and praise you, and ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.